2: Bringle was living there at the time, and he was—he oh, would occasionally pop into the studio and make some really fantastically wow. encouraging comments uh, as we were making the record. I haven't had a swig of it yet. I haven't had. What? A, I haven't had. A, I haven't got, been able to get any. It's all been pre-ordered, and it's all. I'll, I will. I promise. I will, and um, I'll let you know.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now it's great to be back, this is the second episode since returning from my summer hiatus and I've been bowled over by the comments on my return so a quick shout out to some of the listeners who are in touch this past week uh, Thank you very much and hello to Kevin Williamson, Luca Ruiz, Athel Manson, Joseph K, Everton Sosa and Andrew Young as well It's lovely to hear from you all Now if this is the first time you've listened to Vintage Rock Pod then please do go and check out some of the other big interviews from throughout the series as well I speak with rock stars of all varieties really, mods, punks, prog rockers, hair metal, radio rock, basically all types of rock stars that made it big in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Drummers, we're talking guitarists, bass players, lead singers, even flutists and yodelers. Yes, exactly. Uh, more than 40 big guests have passed through the doors of Vintage Rock Pods, so it's definitely worth checking out. Also, a quick mention, if you have a Spotify account or you use Spotify, then there's a couple couple of special Vintage Rock Pod playlists on there for you to follow as well. The first being one set up by listener Paul Graham. He's put together a playlist where he updates all of the top five song recommendations that I've selected throughout the entire series. Some brilliant songs in there. So to find that one, just search for Vintage Rock Pod Top Fives to find that one give it a follow and the other is a very special unique curated playlist that i've put together of songs chosen by the massive name guests themselves now i ask all the guests that i speak to to nominate a song from their own back catalogues to go onto this playlist and you can see all the incredible groups and songs on their chosen by the stars themselves so to see all those search for vintage rock pod artists choice That's Vintage Rock Pod, artist's choice on Spotify. Go ahead and search for both of those. Right, without the way then, let's get on to today's guest. Now he's part of one of America's classic, classic rock bands, Styx, with a plethora of multi-platinum selling albums and so many top 10 singles in the US too. But he joined the band at the end of the 90s when Dennis DeYoung departed. Prior to joining Styx, though, he had a hugely successful solo career in Canada, massively so, with, again, platinum and gold-selling singles and albums there, and Juno Awards too. His solo success was confined to Canada only, though, because, well we dive deep into the reasons why in the interview. He also talks about his connection to the UK. There's big names mentioned throughout as well. Likes of Ringo Starr, John Anderson from Yes, the guys from Rush, The Stranglers and many more with a rundown on Styx's highly acclaimed new album which went to number one on the US rock charts thrown in. Oh and a bit of beer chat as well at the end for you. So here you go. Please enjoy this great interview with current Styx frontman and keyboard player Lawrence Gowan. I'm delighted to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Mr. Lawrence Gowan, lead singer with Sticks. How are you? How are you, Paul? Good to see you. I'm good, thank you. I'm good indeed. I'm chuckling away because I think this is our 15th attempt or something, but we get there in the end. That's the main it thing. It is. Our, our, our opening is becoming more and more polished every time. So <laughs> that would be great. Makes a change for me. That's all I can say. Uh, anyway, Lawrence, it's an absolute pleasure to chat with you. And obviously, you're, you're a superstar in, in Canada and the US. But I want to start with your roots here in the UK. I mean, I'm, I'm from England, but I'm, I've lived in Scotland now for the last, what, 17 years or something like that. So I call this my home now. But yeah. this is a, a, a very special place for you, isn't it? It's a
2: very special place because I I was born in Glasgow actually when we first got on here Paul I was trying to figure out your accent because I thought I think it sounds from England but he's got he's got a Scottish lilt in here as well so uh and as you can hear my accent is probably uh the most uh watered down with Canadian sounding Scottish accent in history uh no I, I was born in Glasgow but was, my parents you know brought me to Canada against my well actually they never even consulted me I was just a little <laughs> and, uh, and so I grew up in Canada, so I'm very, I'm very much Canadian, but it's funny whenever I've been back in Scotland and particularly in Glasgow, I I don't know if you, if you superimpose this, this with your mind, maybe you do, but there's, there is a pull to the place that you're born. That is just even like take the nationality part of it away. There's something about that part of the earth that you're, uh, connected to, this is going really cosmic already, but I really, I I get this great sense of of belonging (laughs) whenever I'm there. People tell me I don't belong there, but I tell them that I do. So oh, good
1: stuff, go. good stuff indeed. Now, as we mentioned, you're lead singer with sticks. You've been with the band for 22 years now. But uh, let's start with 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 Gowen, with with your stuff, your solo stuff, because you had success yeah. in the 80s and in the 90s with your own work. And um, the the breakthrough album, yeah. the big one that kind of burst you onto the stage, "Strange Animal" in 1985. That has a British connection as well, doesn't it?
2: Very much so, because it was I, two of my albums were recorded entirely in England, and "Strange Animal." was recorded at uh, Tittenhurst Park in Ascot. And people might recognize that name. It was the, It's the house where Ringo Starr was living in the 80s. We recorded there in 1984. The album came out in 85. And prior to that, uh, the, the previous owner to Ringo Starr was one of his bandmates, John Lennon, who uh, recorded Imagine wow. in that studio. So it was a phenomenal life experience for me because the Beatles were the reason that I wanted to be a musician, like millions of musicians around the world today. Uh, I remember seeing them at, at the age of seven. You know, I saw them on uh, there was a show, a, a variety show here in uh, in America called um, the Ed Sullivan Show, and they came on there. And at about seven years of age, I realized maybe I don't have to be a hockey player after all. There might there might be another <laughs> pursuit in life. And uh, so to meet him, pretty much twenty years, almost to the day that I that I, it was in February February seventh, nineteen eighty four, and to make the album there was. Fantastic. Ringo was living there at the time, and he was—he oh, would occasionally pop into the studio and make some really fantastic, oh, wow. encouraging comments uh, as we were making the record. Uh, and then, Strange Animal. I—it's funny when we finished recording Strange Animal, an excellent producer, just the right guy at the right time, a guy named Dave Tickle, and the band was—it was Peter Gabriel's backing band with Tony Levin and Jared Marotta, David Rhodes, and another fellow by the name of Chris Jarrett, played with Annabelle Lamb. And uh, so the five of us made the album, and I, I did go back to Canada with a, a pretty good sense of confidence that someone's going to like this record. Uh, and uh, it, it wound up going triple platinum in Canada, but it was I was on Columbia Records, on CBS Records, but it never really released had a proper release in the United States. And so I kind of remained a bit of a, an enigma to, to a, a good number of people in the U.S. for a number of years. But now I've been here, I'm in Phoenix today, uh, touring with sticks for the last 22 years, as you mentioned. And uh, that pretty well sums up my life from beginning to uh, the present.
1: Um, just yeah, touching on that quickly, and I spoke to Lee Aaron uh, not too long ago as well, and she obviously had huge success in Canada. She's Canadian, obviously, and um, she had a bit of success in the, in the, in the Europe as well. But um, because of record company, this, that, and the others, she never got the break in America. Is that kind of what happened with you?
2: Well, the way that it used to work, right, we're in a completely different universe now in the music business side of things. Because you and I, right now, we, we have a worldwide release of this of this little Zoom call that we're doing, right? It goes everywhere. Yep. But the way that the music industry, the, the way they built that industry, a, a good part of it, they were smart business people. They had complete control of the market as to who got exposed into what market and, and, and why. So, for example, I remember going to England in the 80s and, and the jam were a phenomenal band, a huge band. And... Uh, you know, I think they were playing Wembley and stuff. And I'd come back and in America, even if I crossed the border, very few people knew who they were. And I thought, this is really odd. And then I began to realize this is part of how the record companies, the four majors, really controlled the market. And as Canadians, it was very difficult. You needed a a really unique, lucky break to suddenly find a path into the United States and although we share a border. So that's just the way it was back then. And uh, I, I keep have very few complaints though, because things worked out.
1: Absolutely, it worked out tremendously. As we said, the first album was huge, some big singles on there, and then the follow-up album as well, also huge, Great Dirty World, another big success, some more big singles. Yeah. And I just want to mention um, legend, John Anderson, lead singer with Yes, he provided guest vocals on, on Moonlight Daisies, didn't he? I mean, how did that come about?
2: Thank you very much for mentioning that. Yes, John Anderson heard the Strange Animal record. Uh, he was making an album in Los Angeles, and he heard it. And we were in a very close range uh, in studios. And uh, uh, again, he was in the producer's car and played Moonlight Desires, and he really liked it. And we were going to put a guitar solo in that section of the song where he sings, but then he just he kind of did a scat vocal in there that that was way better than any guitar solo could have possibly been because it was I love that. John Anderson. And, and that's such a, such a beautiful moment in that song when he kind of takes the solo. And uh, we wound up going to Mexico together a few months later and we did the video for it on the Mayan Pyramid. So if people want to check that out, the, uh, it's from 1987. You'll see John Anderson. is dressed as what I could only assume was like a, one of the Mayan sun gods and he's on the Pyramid of the Sun and I'm on the Pyramid of the Moon. And at, at uh, I remember we were up there <laughs> about 4 30 a.m. Because back then uh to get a great overhead helicopter shot, we had to be there at the crack of dawn, uh, paid off the guards, you know, that were looking after the area. <laughs> and uh it's funny because we had to do this whole clandestine thing to, to make that video. And to and I went back there a few years ago, <laughs> we were playing a concert with Sticks there at an arena. In Mexico City, and what do I see when I go there after all the the, all the hoops and rings of fire we had to jump through to get that video made and get the helicopter all set up? You weren't allowed to, to film there. It was considered you know, a taboo thing. When I'm there now, it's just thousands and thousands of people with these just doing this all the time, constantly. <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> I live to see it. So anyway, that's that's Moonlight Desires, and uh, that was uh, a great uh, hit for me again in Canada. I think one of the one of my best memories of that is that um, when Yes came to play, it was it had actually reached number one. And uh, I'd never met Chris Squire, and uh, uh, John introduced me. and The first words that Chris said was, "Congratulations on the number one." And then his, his big hand, this gigantic Chris Squire hand, shook hands with me, and then. We wound up touring with him many years later with with Yes. and uh, He remembered that. Well, a phenomenal musician.
1: Absolutely. And speaking of phenomenal musicians, just moving on again, I mean, another name to throw out there, Alex Lifeson. I mean, yeah. Rush, are legendary, especially in Canada. They're almost like gods, aren't they? But I mean, how, how was it worth, Bob? Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. What was it like working with him then?
2: Well, I was managed by the same management company for 14 years. That was all through my solo career. Uh, Anthem, Ray Daniels was our, was our manager. So I I would see the guys often, you know, I I got to Getty and Alex a little bit, Um, you know, enough that we'd see each other a couple of times a year or so. And I'd go to their shows. I met Neil on a couple of occasions. And um, I, I, you know, I really wanted Alex to play on lost brotherhood. It's a darker record than the the previous one. And it was, uh, you know, in 1990, you know, as we were recording it, it, it just needed some of that, gravitas that his guitar can, can bring to uh, to things. And we wanted and actually funny enough, we did a video together called Lost Brotherhood. So people can look that one up here if you if you want to hear Alex.
1: Absolutely. And then um just skipping on again, I mean incredible career. But um we next touch on the tour in nineteen ninety seven with Sticks, which you were a support act on some of the dates and it obviously blew them away because when those performances were seen and heard and the band saw you, I mean, that led them to give you the call when they parted ways with Dennis. And do you remember that conversation and how all that came about?
2: It came about, okay, first of all, we had the same promoter and I was playing a show the same night at a theater in Montreal as they were to play the new Montreal Forum, which is the big arena. So I did the show. It was a solo piano show and it went really well because the audience knew my songs we were singing along and all the guys in sticks wound up side stage. And um, there were <laughs> a couple of encores. It was a great kind of a scripted night. And uh, Tommy Shaw just made a very curious comment to me. He said, we're definitely going to work together again in the future. Meaning, of course, at the time, in the context of it was this is a good opening act. And I was solo on piano. So it was easy to get the piano on off stage real quick <laughs> <laughs> yep. and you know because i wasn't with my full band but the audience reaction was strong enough that they saw i like, a play in front of i guess it was 16 people there and i'd never seen sticks before so when i saw their show i was really blown away with it i was really enamored with the whole band and uh two years later when they called they'd obviously gone through some uh you know horrendous backstage drama i suppose and they said they needed a piano player and a singer and my name popped up and I've been with them ever since. Actually, there was, I, I should mention this too, because this is a great UK connection and Scotland, in fact. In between the, those two years, so from 97, I opened for sticks for two shows Montreal and Quebec City. And then in 98, I got invited to play at the opening of Princess Diana's Memorial at Althorpe in England. And on the bill were yes. Duran Duran and uh, uh, Sir Cliff Richard and, uh, oh, was it another band that was on there um okay oh i i knew so many of them but todd suckerman our, our, the drummer from sticks he was hired to play with uh, one of the acts just for that day and i was there with a bbc orchestra they played a, an original piece of mine called healing waters uh that a cousin of mine put forward andrew henderson had put forward to uh to the people organizing the concert And they, they really loved the song and it got some airplay around around the liverpool area to get some airplay and the family really liked it and, not on that show but todd zuckerman from Styx saw me at that show so a few months later because that was in uh let's think about that that was in Ju- 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 july was it july yeah i was in july of 98 yes a few months later when the thing of piano player my name came up todd said i just saw that guy again in england he was playing with the bbc orchestra and it was at Princess Diana's uh, memorial opening and uh, he said yeah I think I think he could do it if he wants to so there was this kind of I kept kind of back into the circle with the band and and eventually I was the I was the guy
1: now it might seem a, a tough question given the, the size of and the status of sticks but obviously you were very successful yourself uh, with, with Gowan and your solo stuff was there any ever thoughts about maybe maybe not doing the sticks or was it yes as soon as you heard the word?
2: It wasn't, it wasn't an immediate yes, I have to say. It took me about an hour, but not, not, because I, not, not because I was thinking, hang on a second. I've got this wonderful solo career that I don't want to pass up." point. No, what it really was is I was at a stage in my career where I hadn't had international releases. I could sell a good number of records in Canada, you know, go gold and platinum. But um, funny enough, I did a tour again in Britain where I opened for the Stranglers. Yeah. Uh, it was a 28-show uh, tour uh, that we did in uh, 1998. Yeah, that was also 98. And uh, in the fall of 98, and I remember um, or the late summer or something. Yeah. I remember the, the publicist I had, a lady named Judy Totten, she made a very kind of uh, prophetic uh, statement to me. She said, I think what's going to happen at this stage of your career is you're going to join a band. In fact, I, I, I played a show in London where she brought out a manager from the Scottish band Runrig. Yes. I'm sure you've heard of them. Yep, yep. So they came the, the, their management came and saw me in, in uh play this showcase thing in London. And uh, unfortunately their comment was that I was I was too rock for, for, for run rig, whatever that means. Um but I was just right for a strangler score. <laughs> <laughs> so uh but it's funny that Judy said that because it was, you know, in the following year, I got a call to, uh, to to join Styx, and I thought, yeah, this this probably makes sense. Even towards the end of the Strangers Tour, I remember the last few shows, they would invite me to c- come up on stage with them and play, what was the encore? I think it was Peaches okay. on guitar, and I love being on stage with them it, it, It's just a part of the band, just in the background, really, and they added a couple of harmony bits, I think, and um, it, I got the feel of that, of, of kind of going, you know, I wouldn't mind joining a band and, and I'll keep my solo career going whenever I can. I didn't know that I'd join a band as big as Sticks. And there's um, <laughs> usually about 100 Sticks shows and about 15 gallon shows that I do every year absolutely
1: and just touching on that quickly i mean how did it feel then especially in those early days i mean obviously you had a lot of success with your own solo stuff but you're stepping into a a band who's got what was it three multi-platinum albums in the us alone and god knows how many top 10 singles and worldwide hits i mean how was that stepping into something like that
2: yeah you know first of all you you have to feel it's kind of an honor to be asked to 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 join a band of that, that magnitude and that legacy um And I I just kind of I started thinking of, you know, I just fit with these guys as far as like (laughs) laughing at the same jokes. We were kind of musically simpatico as well. We could play the songs really quickly together. We checked our harmonies, you know, the three part harmony between myself and Tommy Shaw and James Young and all the things were kind of clicking. So I had I had their their backing was there so that that instilled an, an extra layer of of confidence. But I, I'm well aware of the fact that when, whenever a band makes a member change, you know, particularly someone that's up front, it's going to there's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. Some people just can't accept it, and others will be you know are open minded about it. And I kind of began to develop this philosophy, and it was that I'd seen the Rolling Stones a couple of times, and with but only with, with Ron Wood, and I started to think, you know, Ron Wood is every bit a Rolling Stone as Brian Jones and Mick Taylor and, and Charlie Watts, you know, and Bill Wyman. Um, he's every bit as much the spirit of that band is alive in this guy. And I thought, I think that's what's happening going to happen. Well, it happened right after the first few shows with sticks. I thought the spirit that's in this band, that's a separate entity. I think it somehow can survive this. And, um, so it's, the experiment is ongoing. We're at 22 years and counting.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, survived it. It certainly has with 22 years. And and various albums, studio albums, live albums, tours, and everything. And that kind of leads us on nicely to the brand new release. It came out, didn't it, a couple of months ago, Crash of the Crown. It's the uh, first new album in four years. And it's been getting some really good reviews as well. I've been reading them. So it's 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 really nice to see a, a new album. It's great.
2: You know, it's funny. Jay has said, uh, you know, the, the Mission and Crash of the Crown have both, both received the greatest critical reviews that Sticks ever had in their careers. I mean, it's really funny because when their records came out, you know, uh, you know, you know ironic that they, they had four triple platinum albums in a row in the late 70s to early, you know, early 80s. And the critics would slay them every single time. Now, I think we're at a point in history where classic rock is is the great musical statement of the last half of the 20th century. It's a very very respected musical style, much the same as jazz or classical or any other idiom that you wanted to bring up. It has stood by far, stood the test of time. So people take it a little more with a, with a, with a little more, um, I don't want to say seriousness, but they, they know that it's got, it's got staying power if it's done right. And I think with these last two records, we, you know, and we've added our producer, Willie Vankovich has been a great addition to the band because that's helped to galvanize our creative, focus universal records are back with the band again or we're back with them so you know we have a great record company back again. so both with the mission and particularly with crash of the crown that went to number one on the billboards rock album chart the first couple of weeks um it, it shows that that people really you know they, they they love classic rock and I listen to new bands that are very, very influenced from that area, era that I yep. just enjoy so much, like Muse and Oil Blood, and I can name a few. I was keen that um, that draw heavily from that era, and have added their own twist and nuance to it. And I think, um, I think it's, I think if we make records like these last two, things will, be, things will go well
1: absolutely well indeed now talk to us about the the making of this album then because i've talked to many people who've who've talked about the fact that the pandemic got in the way and all this virtual working and all that sort of stuff now the plans for this album were were set in place uh, pre-pandemic weren't they so you kind of worked through it so talk to me about how all that worked for you guys
2: i certainly will so in in 2019 we had all the songs but two were written for the album and we had we being myself uh, tommy shaw and willie vankovich our producer and, and fellow bandmate now uh we had kind of mapped out everything uh as i say all but two songs that were ready for the other guys to come in and we would all you know uh, collectively go in the studio in nashville and uh and and bang it out the way we did with the mission and the pandemic hit and uh at first just like you know these zoom calls were like a, they were such a novel thing at the time but it's amazing how we, Technology, with any technology, how quickly they become second nature. And at first, like in, in March of last year, we thought, well, this, I guess we'll have to push everything back by about six weeks, probably, you know, before we get all this behind us. And at about the three-month mark, you know, <laughs> as, we, as things got into the summer of 2020, we realized, um, hmm, this could stretch on for who knows let's listen to where, where we are on the record and see what, see what it was like and then much to our kind of pleasant but uh, shocking at the same time surprise so many of the songs really related to what people were or what us personally were going through and it seemed like it, it you know the word the word prescient came into my vocabulary where i thought this is almost eerie how it's it's mirroring it's reflecting you know the the current mindset and we all felt that and thought, okay, we have to find a way to, um, to, to to move forward and record this album. So what we did was these Zoom calls, I would have it split up with four or five guys on the screen. I went into, I've got a great studio in Toronto. I went in there. I was able to, for the first time, ever use all my vintage instruments yes. on the sticks record. So I had a 20s. There's a 1920s Steinway there and there's a, a 50s wow. B3 and I've got Woberheim from 1979. And I've got a, uh, believe it or not, I've got one of the original Mellotrons, the M 400 from uh, 1971. I think it was built. These are the things that you can't even move three inches before they um, disintegrate, but I was able to use them on the record at the same time. Todd Zuckerman in Austin, Texas. He's got one of the most sophisticated drum rooms in the world. If, if there are drummers out there that uh, are familiar with Todd, you know he's got several hundred thousand followers of people that go to these drum clinics that he does. Many of them from that this uh, studio, this drum studio that he's got. He was able to record there. Uh, Tommy Shaw and Willie Vankovich were in Nashville, and this app that we were unaware of but became very familiar with, called Audio Movers. In, in our studio and the speakers there are playing simultaneously with the ones in Nashville, simultaneously with the ones in Austin. And it became very second nature, as I'm speaking to you right now, you know, to be in the studio, you know, normally I'd be, we're in booths anyway, and you're looking off to the guy there, you know, in the next kind of, yeah. you know, glassed off booth. It became so second nature that I'm telling you, <laughs> I remember at one point, our engineer in Toronto, Russ, he was sitting not not 10 feet away from me. And at one point, I had to ask him about something. And instead of turning my head to him, I actually asked him like this, like exactly as you and I are exchanging. because And it became extremely effective because, you know, we were listening to each other and, and really not. Not not having the, the any sense of disconnect, like when you send a part through an email or something like that. Instead, it was like in real time, just exactly as if we were in a studio together. And that's how we completed the album.
1: Fantastic stuff. I just love the way that technology allows us to do this sort of stuff, which if you rewind maybe 15, 20 years, no chance.
2: Not a chance at all. It's it's like we were saying at the top of this conversation about how the music industry was where you know major labels had things kind of walled off, and so that they controlled the market, and that that was great because it, it wouldn't be the market that it is today had it not been for that in some ways. But I think Crash of the Crown is a, is a, my, in my completely unbiased opinion, <laughs> just within the band, it was great that we were able to do that as a band, and find something that we could all focus on and and accomplish over that uh, over that period.
1: Absolutely. So just for people that haven't listened to Crash of the Crown yet, as I said, it's been out a couple of months. Give us, a, give us a feeling or a taste of what people can expect when they do turn it on and listen.
2: First of all, you know, the part of the band that I was most attracted to and, and wanted to kind of champion, you know, when I joined, was the progressive side of Sticks. You know, all the, yep. all the great progressive bands are all from the UK. And I remember in the 70s, you know, in Toronto, I noticed, hey, you know, that band sticks. They 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 sound like a prog rock band, you know, from the UK, and they're being successful. There were other bands that had tried it and weren't quite as successful, you know. Rush, were very much to my mind, were, were a prog band as well. You know, they kind of bridged this thing between being a heavy rock band and a and a Prague yeah. band, if we have to categorize things. But but there, I, I basically I categorize Prague as being musically adventurous music. It's adventurous and it doesn't necessarily ha- have have to follow any pre prescribed song format, you know, you can, it doesn't have to be first chorus, first chorus, it doesn't have to be anything other than a piece of music that unfolds in its own manner, you know, and uh, it it, it can take on any form. So that's what I love about it. Um, And with sticks, you know, Crash of the crown is definitely a record that falls into that category. There are just the title track alone, you know it's 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 not even 4 minutes long but it's almost like three or four songs mashed into one thing there are three different lead vocalists you know it starts off with yeah. James Young then Tommy takes over and then he and I kind of do a, a thing together the whole then we get the gang vocals and then I kind of carry out the the last part of the song and that's that's it changes the balls being passed around in, in a lead vocal sense uh, within that song and there's three completely separate motifs that 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 arise so it's very much a prog song but in a in a more modern format by condensing it down to something that's only you know under four minutes which is outside the the boundaries of conventional prog I guess in, in some ways so um, the record is m- for the most part like that it's very musically adventurous although it's it's only roughly 40 minutes long like any album because we we're trying to make we're trying to stick to the album statement which is a usually Mm -hmm. roughly 20 minutes or 21 minutes of music on one side and then a brief intermission while you flip it over (laughs) you know and go through that tactile experience and even if you get the thing digitally or on, on a cd it's still that it's still that experience that we're trying to do. We didn't want it to extend on to being, oh, here's some bonus tracks and all kinds of things that we can do. Because I think I think that distracts people from the central focal core of what an album should be, which is a 40-minute musical statement where everything cohesively somehow knits together. Um and the best albums are like that. You know, I think that you know that's that's part of what that, that form of entertainment, why, why. Uh, Queens and Night at the Opera, or Elton John's, you know, Honky Chateau, and and you know, Pink Floyd, you know, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, or Genesis with uh, with uh, a Trick of the Tail. It's it seems like one cohesive forty minute um, musical, you know, ad, uh, experience that you kind of drink in, and you know, you don't have to necessarily be, you know, glued to any one particular hit single. You just you kind of follow this current mindset of the band and crash of the crown is an album very much like that
1: absolutely it's well worth checking out the album head to sticksworld.com is probably the best place to to get all the details of where you can buy that or where you can stream it and all the other information as well that, that you guys are up to and, and we speak about you guys at the moment you're on tour you're back out playing live music in front of real people and real crowds i mean just how great a feeling was that when you first got out on stage in front of your fans again
2: a great feeling every single night quite honestly i have never I, I never thought in my life there would be this the closest thing to it was when we played our first shows after 9-11 you know being mm-hmm. here in america there was a, a sense in the audience of, of great um resilience i can't really put another word on it than that there really isn't a word to quite describe it this however was was in some ways even even deeper because there was this sense of relief Mixed with a slight sense of just well the, the the overjoy of on people's you know faces. Even if they have masks on, you could you could tell just in their eyes. There was this overjoy, but also this sense that we've been collectively, the whole planet has been through this really uh this experience that we should have been better prepared for, quite frankly. They've been predicted for many years that some way like this could happen, but until it's upon us, we don't know really what the reality of that is and what and how to navigate our way through it. Everyone has had to navigate a path through this. And the underscoring of how vital music yeah. is in everyone's everyone's life that, that you know, we this is another great thing on social media. It was obvious from the messages that we would see and just how people they wanted that live concert experience again so badly. Um and when they finally got it when you walk on stage every single night that we've done it since june there's this this sense in the audience of just great joy and relief and mixed with you know the ongoing um, concerns that you know <laughs> that we're not yeah. through this yet so everyone has to do what you know what they, feel they need to do as are we by the way you know our whole backstage is completely different than it ever was before we only see our own band and our, and our own crew, you know, all of those protocols are in place. And, you know, hopefully I'm getting I'm everything wood around me. <laughs> it'll, uh, it'll continue on, but, but we all know audience and band. We know that this could suddenly, this, the, the plug could be pulled, you know, just because it has to be, you know, and we're, we're hoping that that doesn't happen. So fingers crossed, we continue, uh, doing what's best.
1: Absolutely. Fingers crossed indeed and just one last little thing to touch on. Um I received a, an interesting press release uh, a couple of weeks ago and I spoke to uh, Roger Earl from Fog Hat recently and he was talking about the band's uh, wine range and then um there's obviously various other things I made and have got certain things and this that, and the other and um sticks very exciting. They've got their own lager they've released, Oh Mama, in conjunction with uh, Voodoo That's... Brewing and the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, come on, tell us about that. That sounds wonderful.
2: I think it's great. You know, we actually um Maybe about 15 years ago, we came up with a coffee blend. It was called from a company called Coffee Tools. It was a sticks blend, and I, I love that because you know it was like Starbucks, you know, and sticks. Renegade is a song that the, the, the football team, the the um, American football, yeah, uh, team, used this song. Renegade, and I think every game they've played in at least the last 10 years, it's a it's a rallying cry for the for the team. So it's it's taken on that connotation, and they wound up doing the NFL, the national football league wound up doing shirts because it starts with that. Oh, mama, I can, yep. you know, I'm in fear for my life. Um, so that, Oh mama became uh became kind of a rallying cry for the team. And uh, yeah, we got our own beer now. I haven't even, I haven't had a swig of it yet. I haven't had, what? A, I haven't had, a, I haven't got, been able to get any, it's all been pre-ordered and it's all, I'll, I will, I promise I will. And um, I'll let you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a, I'm not that great. Of that. I shouldn't admit this to a Scottish audience. But I'm not. A, I'm not that big a, a beer aficionado, um, but I know a good one when I taste one. <laughs>
1: And I'm sure O'Mama's one of the best, let's say that. Um, it's been an absolute...
2: Pl- it's at the top of the list, for sure.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Lawrence, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I know you're busy, you're on the road at the moment, so yeah. I thank you very much for you, for taking the time to speak to us.
2: Well, just great to speak with you and say hello to all the all the critters there on the Scottish Highlands that you come across. Um, and uh, yeah, well, really, really wonderful. I hope we get a chance to play in Scotland again in as near the future as, as, absolutely possible. It'd be great to see all my relatives there again. And, uh, and yeah. to, uh, to go back to the place where I was born. Cause I love it. It's funny. When I announce that from stage in Scotland, they're, they're not very, they're not all that impressed. They're like, so what? So, so we're all of we, <laughs> it's really good. And yet when I'm here in America, if I meet anyone from Scotland, it's a, it's a big yeah. deal, you know, it's a, it's a completely different mindset oh you're from scotland oops you know what i don't want to do a scottish accent because as my cousins always say you know i'll do a scottish accent and they'll say to me i'll bet people tell you you're really good at that at home
1: (laughs) that's a great way to end it um lawrence great to speak
2: with you paul i hope we get a chance to do this again sometime and uh, all the best
1: lovely take care thanks now cheers bye now There you go, the brilliant Lawrence Gowan there. What a top man he is. And I'll let you into a little secret here. The interview was actually paused halfway through because, well, I'd overrun my allotted time and he had another interview to do. But in his own words, he was really enjoying our interview, so he asked me to stick around to pick it up again after he finished his last one. Here you go, have a listen to this.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, Actually, you know what, Paul? I want to tell you everything about that, but I'm supposed to make another call right now at 1130 But this is my last call of the day. Can I call you right back and we'll continue? Yeah, I'm really enjoying this.
1: So there you go, he could quite easily have fobbed me off and gotten rid of me, but uh, a bit of a compliment for me there that he didn't, he wanted me to stick around. So anyway, right, we've reached the point of the show where I give you my top five songs from the guest or band that was featured in the show. So because I think he deserves a bit of exposure that was kind of limited back in the 80s and 90s, I'm going to run you down my personal five favourite songs from his solo career, where he went under the name Gowan. So here's my five favourite songs from Gowan, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is the track that features the legendary Yes frontman John Anderson. It was the lead single from Gowan's third studio album, Great Dirty World, and features a big sing-along chorus. At number five is Moonlight Desires. Number four opens Gowan's fourth album, Lost Brotherhood. Again, another soaring chorus for you to enjoy. And number four is All The Lovers In The World. 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 And number three is a track from his second album, Strange Animal. It's built around a driving beat and a riff that echoes the vocal of the chorus. And number three is You're A Strange Animal. number two is his big hit. it's the one that shot him to fame and has since been certified as a platinum selling single in Canada it's an epic seven minute plus masterpiece with a video suitable to match winning the Juno award for the best music video of 1985 from the album strange animal number two is a criminal mind And at number one for me is the title track of his fourth record. Features Rush's Alex Lifeson on soaring guitars. It's darker and edgier than his other songs, and for me that helps it win out. The number one Gowan song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Lost Brotherhood. So there you go, my favourite five songs from Lawrence Gowan's solo career, where he went by the name Gowan. Definitely check out those. And check out the new Styx album, too, called Crash of the Crown. Now, as ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on my top five list. Where do you agree or disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. Or you can message me on the socials as well. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Give us a like or a follow on there as well. I'm always posting little videos and pictures and things like that, clips from interviews and various other bits and bobs on there. So it's always great to keep in touch with me. And uh, yeah, it'd be nice to interact with you as well. So please get following on the socials. You can also sign up to become a VRP VIP too, and you'll receive a newsletter that will land in your inbox at the very most once a week. It's full of info about the episodes before they get released. There's chances to win things and extra little stories from the world of Vintage Rock Pod. So just go to my website, VintageRockPod.com, dead easy, VintageRockPod.com, and you can sign up using the form that's on the first page there. I promise your information will not be sold or passed on to anyone else. I'm not going to spam you and you're going to be completely safe. Also on the website, VintageRockPod.com, you can see all the podcast episodes are on there. You can also see the links to all the news articles that come from the interviews that I do throughout the series. You can find all the little stuff on there. Just have a little search around and check it out. VintageRockPod.com. Well, that's it for this week's show then. Coming up in the next few weeks though, I've got some big name guests lined up for you, including two rock and roll hall of famers. I've got a man who played guitar on, in my opinion, the greatest cover of all time, Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower. Yes, he played the acoustic guitar on that. Uh, There's many more of the guests as well lined up so if this is your first listen then make sure you follow or subscribe to the series so you don't miss any of the episodes they usually land on a Monday morning for you. So until the next episode then remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care.